I think, you know, ultimately we would never want to not invest behind uh, an exceptional founding team and exceptional technology because we felt like we were overexposed in fintech or climate tech or anything like that. So I think, you know, from a thesis perspective, it's just about, you know, building that uh, sharpened mind for when you do potentially meet a founder building in a space that you're really excited about and having conviction in the, you know, kind of diligence process that you're that you're running after you meet that founder to potentially to potentially writing a term sheet and, and partnering with that founder for the long term. Hi, and welcome to Career Illustrated. I'm your host, Jonathan Tanner. Each week, we explore fulfilling careers by inviting industry professionals to share their personal insights and experiences. This show is for you if you're looking to make a career change, just getting started in your career, or curious about different roles and industries that are helping to shape our world on a daily basis. So join us in discovering new opportunities and learning more about the inner workings of the world. Today's guest is Jason Tahir. Jason is a venture associate at Strut Capital, a pre-seed and seed state venture capital fund based in Santa Monica, California. In his career, Jason has over six years working directly with tech founders across various roles, and I'm really excited for you to learn from him and his wealth of experience in the space. So without further ado, welcome on to the show, Jason. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Same, same. So let's jump right in. Um, Before we jump into your role as a venture associate, can you tell us a little bit about Strut Capital and explain to us maybe what pre-seed and seed stages are um, and what they mean? Sure. Yeah. So we are a Los Angeles-based venture capital fund. We invest in software businesses, kind of generalists, but we spend most of our time, I think, in fintech, e-commerce enablement, vertical software, climate tech, and a few other categories. But um, you know, generally excited to talk to the best and brightest founders across the U.S. and Canada, um, solving really, really large issues um, with scalable technology. I think the the spectrum of pre-seed to seed is is a little bit fuzzy, but ultimately, you know, it can mean anything from you know pre-product, um, just a couple of founders, you know, building out Figma Figma wire uh, wireframes to you know seed stage companies that have you know, a million dollars in ARR. So, you know, ultimately we're, we're looking to back, you know, incredible technical teams at early stages and, and help them in their path to Series A and beyond success. So definitely fortunate to, to have joined the organization about a year ago and, um, you know, get to meet with incredible founders every day and support them on their, their goals to uh, scaling their companies. At Struck, you're a venture associate. What do you as a venture associate do? So we we run pretty lean. So I am on the the deal side. So my role, I think, can really be broken down into a few components. Um, one is sourcing deals. So that could be from accelerators, you know, meeting founders at in person events here in town, or if I'm on you know a work trip to to one of the larger tech hubs, that could mean chatting with other investors who might also be taking a look at. A certain opportunity, and also, you know, sourcing from within our network. You know, we've done a lot of network building since the inception of the firm to really get connected with, you know, incredibly strong operators across some industries that we're really excited about who refer us to, to founders that are building in the space. So definitely a ton of time spent sourcing, um, and then you know, after sourcing a deal, it's it's diligencing it. So it's really trying to understand all the nuances to the market. 
the technology that they've built, the founding team themselves, why they're so excited to solve that, this problem, um, what, what skills that they have that they're bringing to the organization in terms of sales or marketing or, or engineering and product. Um, so it's really just trying to understand all the nuances of the market and the business. And then finally, it's, it's ultimately after, you know, you, you potentially partner with a founder, it's working with them to, to, to scale their business. And so we've done a really good job of building out a really robust platform team. So I can't take too much credit for, for all the assistance after we make an investment, but ultimately it's all hands on deck whenever we, we decide to, to partner with an, with a founding team and with a company. And, you know, I, I'm there to, to connect any dots as I can for, for the companies in the portfolio and for the founder community more broadly. So that's the core responsibilities. I think also, you know, work on some ad hoc strategic stuff for the firm, standing up um, events or just doing any sort of internal reporting that can help us operate more efficiently. So um, I think my, my role is diverse in nature, but ultimately is driving towards uh, a pretty clear and defined North Star of just finding and partnering with the, with the best and brightest founders and helping them succeed. And so you're mostly deals and diligence or sourcing and diligence of the deals. But you talked a little bit about the platform team. What are some of the other teams within the firm structure that you would work with to facilitate or to facilitate the deals? Yeah, so uh, here at Struck, we have the deal team. So it's myself and, um, you know, kind of the lead on the deal team, Greg, who are who are really focused on sourcing, diligencing, and then providing support, whether it's sitting on a board or, or, or things like that post-investment. The platform team is really anything after we, um, you know, partner with, with a founder and, and with that company. The, the platform team does everything to connect dots related to, you know, getting them intros into our network, assisting them with hiring. Um, you know, we've built some some internal tools to really facilitate that in a scalable manner. That could be also just being a strategic ear for our portfolio companies. So helping them think through core KPIs that they need to, to hit to reach, you know, the next uh, milestones and, and Series A financing um, and just generally being a, a good thought partner for founders. You know, founding journey is incredibly difficult and full of a lot of different hurdles and challenges that might be unexpected when you initially start a business. And so ultimately just being a strong ear for, for them to lean on and um, assisting them in their journey is something that I think our platform team does incredibly well and have been fortunate to, to hear firsthand from the founders that, that we've been able to, to really move the needle on a lot of those different areas I outlined. And so very grateful that we've invested as heavily in platform as we have. Do you focus on a specific industry or are you covering all of the industries that Struck covers? Yeah, I think I think being a generalist is is helpful. I cover all the industries that that we cover, but I would say I spend most of my time in fintech, e-commerce enablement software, vertical software, um, and, and kind of climate tech, especially recently. That's that's where I've been spending most of my time. I think there there's pros and cons of being a generalist. I think. Um, the, the con is you don't do, don't build up as much domain expertise. If you are spending time in different industries, um, the pro I think of being a generalist is ultimately there's a lot of, um, similarities, I think for companies that scale as, you know, in software businesses, whether they're, you know, solving a problem in e-commerce or they're solving a FinTech problem or, or a problem in climate, 
I think there's a lot of similarities between, you know, founder characteristics, between market types, between business models that can be replicated across industries. So I think having a horizontal lens as a generalist investor can be really beneficial in that way in that you, you kind of pick up a lot of um, core identifiers of success of companies across industries and can, can potentially apply them to, to business models and new industries. So um, there's pros and cons, but, but ultimately, um, you know, I think I, I kind of really lean in on, on those, those industries in particular and, um, try and just generally keep, uh, a flexible mindset if I do chat with a founder outside of those core industries. Is there a push in the VC space now more than normal, um, regarding climate tech? Cause you said now more than usual or in the past. Yeah, I think there has been, um, I think that the, particularly from a policy perspective, there's just so many tailwinds for, for entrepreneurs and founders building in the climate space um, related to the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, so there's been a lot of exciting, I think, progress in climate related to thinking through the financing of climate products, um, how we think about building supply chains to make them more sustainable and durable in the face of different um, impacts that are climate related employment as well. Jobs are changing in the face of um, climate change. And so there's so many opportunities, I think, to build and in light of a lot of these tailwinds that are um, that have been policy related. And then also from a consumer perspective, consumers, particularly younger consumers, are really identifying sustainable brands as um, ones that they want to, to purchase from. So I think you've seen a lot of e-commerce enablement software built uh, and providing e-commerce businesses and merchants with um, some sort of sustainable edge, whether that's through product marketing, assisting, you know, cleaning up their supply chain. There's definitely some really exciting progress there um, that's made that's that's in climate tech. So um, definitely a confluence of both, I think, like social macro trends as well as broader policy um, that's, that's really um, helped climate really progress, I think, the last year or so. So now that we have a, a broad idea of what your job entails specifically around um, sourcing and also diligence, can you walk us through the end-to-end process of, of the job? So from you making the decision to which companies or even how you get the, let's say, the batch of companies you want to source, and then to the diligence that's done to understand whether or not you should invest and or partner with them at all before you pass them on to the platforms team. You know, starting with with any sort of investment process, you you nailed it. It's it's with sourcing, and ultimately we try and have a diverse sourcing network. So that means coverage at accelerators. Um, that means coverage from our network network who are sending us inbound deals that that are within certain industries that that we are especially excited about. And that could be out outbound sourcing. So whether I'm seeing a founder on LinkedIn that I think is building something interesting or doing thesis building and, and I see a company and building within a, within a thesis I'm excited about, you know, doing outreach in that way. And then finally, it's, you know, sourcing from, from the VC network. So one nuance about us that I think is important to note is we're a lead only fund. So we are leading pre-seed and seed rounds. And, and so 
Often that means we can be really collaborative with funds who might be follow-on checks in a round. So they're not writing the, the largest check in the round. And ultimately, they're sharing deals with lead investors who can you know, price the round. So they'll put a valuation on the company, write the largest check in the round, take a potential board seat, and really provide those ancillary services related to platforms. So we get deal flow from investors who have seen companies who might be looking for, for a lead investor. So I think, you know, we, we try and do a really good job of being diverse in, in all of our sourcing channels to make sure we can see as many companies as possible. After, you know, we're, we're sent a deal, if it's, if it's a fit for an introductory conversation, you know, myself or my colleague on the deal team, Greg, will have, you know, an introductory chat with, with the founder or the founding team. During that conversation, we we really want to share a lot about us and not have it just be a one-way street. I think the best uh, relationships and the best introductory conversations are, are um, information sharing across both sides. So, you know, we're sharing a lot about our firm, you know, the platform services that we provide um, and just our broader thesis on, on companies we get really excited about. In addition to that, you know, we're spending time learning more about the founders, um, the technology they built to date, what sort of traction milestones they've hit, and just chattering, getting you know, a general overview of the business and, and an introductory understanding of what they've built to date. After that process, if it's you know, a mutual fit, if there's interest in both parties and continuing the conversation, you know, we'll move forward into to more of a deeper double-click second call where you know, we've had a chance to chat about the business internally. There's some core areas that we're interested in learning more about, whether it's competitive landscape, you know, their go-to-market strategy, their technology, anything of that nature. There's areas where we're keen about learning more about. And so we'll dive into that during a second call. And then from there, there's just additional steps. You chat with customers. You'd potentially intro them to potential customers in your networks. You can get potential feedback on, on the product as well as in competitive deals. You want to, you know, providing them with potential customers is a good way to, to win a competitive deal. And then also, you know, getting everybody on a team call and building a working relationship. So that's including our platform team and all the other kind of hands around, hands around the table we have here at Struck. Um, because we do work really closely with founders. So I think generally that's that's the process leading into a potential term sheet. You know, try and try and do as much um, internal and external diligence work to really either inoculate against certain risks or or validate that you're you're comfortable with with a potential potential risk based on that diligence and work you've done. So, you know, pretty comprehensive in nature. I think the the broader market uh, and macro environment has made it more possible to, to lean in on a full-fledged diligence process. So we've been able to spend more time with founders recently, which I think ultimately is highly beneficial in just building that relationship. Particularly at the pre-seed and seed stage, you're likely going to be partnering with a founder if all goes well for you know seven to 10 years before a potential exit. So I think you know in the grand scheme of things, spending two weeks with a founder in a diligence process and, and going deep on the business and building that relationship is is net positive rather than a shotgun diligence process where it's just a few days and you're writing a term sheet and and um, both parties may, maybe aren't going in with with uh, eyes wide open, so to speak. So yeah, that's generally generally how we think about things from from kind of introductory call to term sheet to to you know moving forward with the potential partnership. And you said lead only, so just. Quick explanation. Lead only means you're investing the most into the startup at that round? 
I would say most pre-seed to seed rounds are between $1 million and $5 million. Oftentimes, a, a founding team in a startup will want a lead investor to write probably half, you know, a check for half of the round, if not slightly more. The reason why a lead investor is really beneficial is if it's what is, is kind of called a party round, and maybe there's 10 to 15 checks in an in a, in a individual, individual round, there's less um, less of a less ownership from from one institutional investor, and and by ownership I don't mean like percentage points in the cap table, but more so kind of meaning to that broader portfolio. So if if a, some fund strategy is to write you know twenty five to thirty checks a year, really spread their bets out, whereas a lead investor oftentimes is has a slightly more concentrated portfolio. And with that, they're allocating more time to the relationship post-investment. And so that's kind of how we think about things from, from a platform side. You know, if we were writing 25 checks a year, we wouldn't be able to, to scale the effort and time we spend with founders post-investment. So I think, I think for founders, it's really beneficial to have a pre-seed and seed fund only that, that just does early stage that's leading their rounds because each check is really meaningful to their portfolio and they're ultimately willing to, to kind of roll up their sleeves and, and, and work alongside of the founding team. Um, so yeah, structurally to, to loop back on it, you know, that often means we're taking 50%, if not slightly more of a round, um, taking a board seat, leaning in, providing that value. And then from there, you know, working with the founding team to build out the remainder of the round with other value add investors, whether it's they spend their their vertical specific investors, so they might just spend time in fintech or e-commerce enablement, or the partner at that other fund has a deep network within that that portfolio company's target market. Um, it's ultimately just trying to build out a really well-rounded syndicate um, to help propel the company into to the next stages of growth. Um, I know typically firms or investors in general like to have others invest with them, but as a lead, is there ever, would there ever be a situation where you would be the only investor in a company? No. So yeah, we, we like partnering with, with other funds as well who can provide, um, you know, kind of write checks other than, than our lead only check. We think there's a ton of strategic value in having, you know, a cap table that is diverse in, in nature. And so whether that's, again, industry experience from the founding team, um, a specific type of service that that, uh, that fund might provide. So some, some funds really lean in on certain areas of, of value creation post-investment. Um, we, we think it's really relevant to have a few hands around the table um, for, for these rounds. So it varies on, on round to round, but we generally try and have, you know, we'll, we'll lead around We'll have a few other institutions in the round and then a couple of highly strategic angel investors. So operators, executives at companies within that within that portfolio company space who can who can all be accretive in, in some sort of way to, to the company. And you were also saying that based on the current investment climate and, and macro economic environment in general, you now are able to spend more time with founders. What about this climate is allowing you to spend more time with founders and companies? I think 2021 and early parts of 2022 were particularly crazy for technology investors. There was a ton of excitement around just general trends around the digitization of so many industries, new consumer behaviors that were lending themselves 
that were, you know, lending themselves, you know, for, for success for companies that were technology uh, businesses. And so I think that led to kind of a shift in, in the power dynamic between a founder and a potential investor to founders had even more options than ever to get financing. Um, oftentimes they could raise in front of traction they might have had. So you saw more seed rounds getting done at a pre-product, pre-traction pre stage. So, so hardly any, if no, if no revenue, just because the dynamic was shifted and, and people were really excited to write checks and, and invest behind what they thought was this incredible pull forward from a macro perspective related to COVID and just the general digitization of so many industries. I think as the interest rate environment has changed and ha- and consumer and general business behavior has maybe reverted back to, to maybe some sort of normalcy, um, you've seen that power dynamic shift somewhat. And ultimately, that means the, the bar is, is, is higher than it was in 2021 and in, in the first parts of 2022 from, a, from an investor perspective. You need to see more traction for, for these rounds to get done. And because um, multiples uh, from growth investors have changed, so they're, they're not valuing companies as, on as high a multiples as they were previously, companies need to be a lot more diligent in, in how they you know, reach the next stage of financing and focus a lot more on their unit economics and, and growing in a more sustainable fashion. So I think ultimately the, the broader macro environment has shifted um, to, to slightly more uh, of a balance between investor and founder. And that's led to just you know, a little bit longer diligence periods um, and just the opportunity for both parties to get to know one another, you, you more get to know one another more closely. And I think ultimately that's going to lead to a lot more durable businesses over time, just because kind of the priorities have shifted. It gets me thinking, knowing that most startups fail, and then you have there is probably more than three factors, but you have you know your team on the deal side, then you have the platform team, and then you have the startup itself. So the quality of startups you're sending to the platform and you're, you know, you're doing your diligence on how they're operating or doing as advisors and then how well the startup is executing, um, not to mention, you know, the macroeconomic environment, et cetera. I'm curious, how are you, how is one, your group as a deals group assessed on success? So how is success measured there? And then more specifically, how would you as a venture associate be assessed or measured for success? Yeah, I think we at Shruck, we were certainly more diligent capital during the really go-go times of 2021 and early 2022. And we maybe didn't deploy as fast as other funds did during that time period, just because we, we maybe felt some of the investing trends, valuations, diligence timelines were unsustainable and ultimately kind of outside of our strike zone and an and, and area of comfort. So I think as, as that environment was not maybe aligned with, with how we like to invest, we, we deployed more slowly, like I said, and as it has shifted back, I think, you know, we've, we've really felt, um, I guess, strengthened in our convictions of, of how we like to, to invest and practice and deploy. And so that means for, for each check we write, it's really meaningful. Um, and I think that's been rewarded here in, in 2023, it just in terms of, you know, how much we lean in on diligence there, the broader trend of just being really patient with, with when you write a check has, has been, I think, generally positive. And, 
And we've seen really good follow-on success rate of companies that have gone on to raise their Series A or whatever downstream financing that may be. So I think from a success perspective, it's really easy to judge yourself just on the number of deals you do. But ultimately, we want to invest in companies that are really enduring and have you know the potential to to reach the public markets. And so, you know, getting those early validation points of a company, you know, raising a follow-on financing, you know, within a few months, like like a lot of investors got in 2022, maybe weren't uh, a KPI to really really strive for and optimize for. So I think you know broadly, you know, from my perspective. I think it's similarly just trying to get the best deals done is is what's most important, not necessarily the cadence or, or pace of capital deployment. So was was really fortunate not to deploy as quickly, like I said, in 2022 and just optimize for, for doing deals that made sense with our thesis and um, really, really just staying true to our convictions in that sense. So definitely, I think a line between personal goals and goals of the fund, um, which is ultimately to optimize returns and, and whatnot. So I understand that the space is more probabilistic than deterministic, right? So in general, X percent of what you're going to do will hit, most will not. So you want to strategically spread it out across. And in the past, you took a very, or the firm took a very slow, but, you know, uh, not slow, slow and strategic approach in terms of ensuring that the, although capital was rampant, um, you were still making smart decisions. And that has shown in the market, I'm guessing, based on, on your investments is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, we we have a concentrated portfolio as a lead fund. We're, we're you know, probably writing, we're probably partnering with 20 to 25 companies um, in this fund. And so, you know, I think we've we've kind of been stayed, to, stayed true to traditional uh, deployment of venture funds. So, a lot of funds were deploying in one to one and a half years. Traditionally, the, the cycle for deployment for a fund is, you know, tw- twice that long, so three years. And so we're, we're pretty close to just being um, kind of par for the course for across the venture industry. And I think it was just a really anomalous year, really, in 2021 and early 2022, where Deployment was just so fast. Funds were going back out to market to raise their next fund really quickly. And so we just feel like we, we're we still obviously writing checks. Um, we're really excited about the founders we're partnering with, but we just feel like we are acting in the best responsibility or in the best interest of our LPs, um, given the fact that we are you know focused on being really really strategic with each check we write and, and ensuring we're not overly deploying or deploying at valuations that don't make sense. Okay. And you, you brought up this term uh, thesis or thesis building a couple of times. Can you elaborate on what that means and to whatever you can share what your thesis is? You know, thesis building is important in that I, I speak with dozens of companies each week. I see even more companies when I'm doing competitive landscaping and things like that. And so you see a lot of trends that are built up um, from a company building perspective that can help you create some sort of thesis. And so, you know, those are given I'm a generalist investor, we're a generalist firm that's spread across different industries. And so that means, you know, we can we can kind of build a diverse set of thesis theses um, in all these different markets and industries. And so, you know, that can be really, really um 
really intentional thesis work where we're creating longer form presentations um, that we share internally around certain trends or or um, themes that we're really excited about, or even just more informal while we're diligencing a company, thinking through a certain thesis or just a broader white space in a potential market. More specifically, I think, you know, I spoke about it um, in particular when we were talking about climate change, but I think the policy tailwinds in that space are just so compelling that it's really difficult to not get excited about a lot of opportunities in in that industry. Um, In particular, I think there's a really interesting trend on the consumer side of the adoption of electric powered products because they're better performing is something that's really compelling. And they're also a better economic decision. You know, Tesla has obviously become a really um, widely appreciated car company. And, um, and I think that that trend will only persist in other types of applications. So whether it's home appliances or any other type of product, even a consumer goods product that's maybe not electric, but is more sustainable in nature. And so I think with that shift in consumer demand towards more sustainably developed products, there's huge opportunities on the labor side to fulfill that consumer demand. And so I certainly think that we're really excited about the potential changing nature of work to support the you know uh, the consumer demands and uh, related to you know sustainably developed pro- uh, products. And so that's been an area we've been spending a lot of time on, you know, as as uh, more of these policy tailwinds come into place and as consumer demand only ramps up is just thinking through how this affects um, employment and, and labor and um, potentially connecting those dots via technology and software. Mm, so would an example of a thesis be based on policy tailwinds and consumer demand around electronic uh, vehicles and other electronic adoption. We want to rebalance our investments in 2024 to 2026 from, uh, let's say, 20% in the electrical sp- or the electric space or climate space in general to maybe 50%. And then we'll change the, we'll rebalance the rest um, and remove some from the metaverse and crypto based on consumer adoption or lack thereof. Is that an example? Um, yeah, so I think, I think, you know, from from a portfolio construction perspective, you know, we definitely, as generalists, we are betting on certain categories and try not to be overweight in one industry or another, um, since we're not a vertical specific, vertically specific fund. I think, um, you know, ultimately, we, we would never want to not invest behind uh, an exceptional founding team and exceptional technology, because we felt like, we were overexposed in fintech or climate tech or anything like that. Um, so I think, you know, from a thesis perspective, it's just about, you know, building that uh, sharpened mind for when you do potentially meet a founder building in a space that you're really excited about and having conviction in the, you know, kind of diligence process that you're, that you're running after you meet that founder to potentially, to potentially writing a term sheet and, and partnering with that founder for the long term. So not not sure it's maybe related to portfolio rebalancing. It's more so just identifying trends that we're really excited about in the climate space related to labor and the broader electrification of the economy um, and thinking through what we think the winning team and product will be. And you've mentioned the team a lot and the importance of that. And I know it's also a, a 
belief that most VCs have, what are some of the key characteristics that you, or I guess in the broader industry would look for in, in a good founding team? Yeah, I mean, you nailed it. The, the founding team at really any stage, but in particular at the pre-seed and seed stages is really paramount and bedrock to any investment decision. You know, oftentimes we're investing in companies that are five or six people tops and, you know, two and two to three of those are, are founders. And so um, I think, you know, as as venture capitalists, sometimes you can you can um, do do too much pattern matching. And that's been a problem in the industry, I think. But ultimately, we like backing founders who are really mission aligned. So did they experience this problem in a previous professional experience or in their personal lives? Um, Do they have previous professional experience that gives them a unique perspective on the problem they're solving? So did they work at a company in a similar space? Maybe they're building a marketplace and they wanted to, to build a marketplace in a net new industry based on their learnings there. All these different identifiers of why they're the best team to sound, to solve a problem, whether that's information asymmetries, personal experience, anything of that nature, those are the types of characteristics we really like to get behind from, from just like a broader mission-driven um, perspective. And then I think also specifically at Struck, and I think for a lot of VC firms as well, we really like backing exceptional product and engineering talent. We feel like the most defensible moat over time is a technical moat. And so we want to back founders that we think can build hard to replicate technology. Um, so I think that often means we're, we're investing behind a founder or a founding team that is technical in, um, in their you know, previous experience. So a few different things to, to really look into, both from, from an information asymmetries perspective and, and as well from a, just a skills perspective that we really look to uh, to identify your working hours must be crazy, right? You're, you're talking to 12 teams a week. You're vetting the teams, like the person you're reading policy to understand where it falls within the grand scheme of things. You're looking at consumer demand. What, how, how, how are your working hours? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a busy job. Um, I, I was telling someone this the other day who was interested in getting into venture. It's, it's honestly more of a, of a lifestyle, I think, than just a job because so much of the job is done outside of, let's say, traditional working hours. So that could be going to an in-person event where, you know, founders might be and it's a fireside chat related to a specific market trend. Or it's going to, you know, a, a dinner with other investors and talking about companies that you might have been seeing, interesting themes that they're looking at, companies in their portfolio that might be going out to raise the next stage of financing that you should be connecting with. So there's definitely a lot of work done outside of the traditional working hours that, um, that people in, in other professions might have. So I think certainly for anyone who wants to get into venture, a, a clear understanding of you know how how many extracurricular events you'll be going to, let's say, is is really important. And then you know something I'm continually working on is being really really highly prioritized with how I spend my time during those more traditional working hours, let's say. So you know really really spending time with companies that um, I, I'm I'm most excited about. And being really efficient in how I, um, you know, either diligence a company or, or think through, you know, how I'm, I'm building a broader um, investment thesis around a certain opportunity. It's really important to be highly strategic, I think, with your time, just because 
there's an endless flow of potential companies to connect with. So certainly, um, you know, a unique job. And I think that uh, one that where that requires a lot of extra effort outside of traditional work hours, if you want to be successful at it. But, you know, I'm also younger in my career. So I'm still, you know, I, 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 uh, I maybe don't have as much experience as someone else who's maybe done the job in a different way. So that's just generally been my experience, though. And the way you talk about it, it also doesn't always seem like work. So you're enjoying these conversations that you're having too with the founders or during research, I'm guessing. Yeah, 100%. I think if you don't, I think one common commonality between a lot of people in venture is that they really like to learn and they really like to be around people. I think if you didn't like those two things, this job ultimately won't be that enjoyable for you because like I said, you're meeting founders all day, you're chatting with other investors all the time, you're talking to industry experts, you're going to these extra in-person events like pitch events or acceler accelerator demo days, all these different things. I think you have to really like to pick up context really quickly, learn about new spaces. So I feel like an idiot all the time when I talk to founders in spaces that I haven't spent time in previously. And I try and learn as much as I can about whatever they might be building in, in that industry. And so I think, you know, an appreciation for, for learning is something that's really important in this job as well, in addition to just kind of the, the broader people skills. And to pull on the learning thread a bit more, what are some of the things that you're listening to or reading or constantly checking to stay up to date or get an edge? Yeah, I think uh, it's it's a it's a good question. Um, I think for for me, there is a ton of content related to the job of, of venture capital out there. From a podcast perspective, a lot of VCs have used it to differentiate themselves from a deal flow perspective and building the brand of their firm. So I try and generally stay away from a lot of that content because I feel like it's not maybe as conducive for, for learning on my end as, as other pieces of content are. So I really like to read that may be, you know, thought pieces related to, you know, like we've talked about the, the climate tech space and the, the regulations in that area, reading, you know, well-researched policy papers on that or, or, or things of that nature that I, I, I enjoy consuming and, and reading in, in more of the extracurricular and ad hoc ways that way rather than podcasts or anything like that. And then also, I think trying to find interesting in-person events where there's potential experts talking about industries that you're really excited about. Um, so, you know, it might be someone who's built an e-commerce enablement business having a, a, a fireside conversation here in Los Angeles or a one-day conference or something like that, going to that and, um, you know, learning that way I find to be really beneficial as well for, for me. So I think a mix, I, uh, I, I, I try and stay away from, from the broader podcast tech space just because a lot of it feels really undifferentiated and, and ultimately not as conducive for me for learning. No, that makes sense. Especially as a generalist, you want to, you would stay away from the general fluff that's going on and get uh, a bit deeper in the verticals that, that you're attacking. I, I like that approach a lot, actually. You, you touched on it a little bit already. Uh, I wanted to know what are some of the qualities that would make a great venture capitalist? Because you already talked about, you know, it wouldn't be right for you if you don't like to learn and you don't like to be around people. Um, what are some of the others? Yeah, definitely those two immediately come to mind, you know, a love for being around people and meeting meeting people and being able to to relate to founders, a love for learning I think is really important. 
and then also I think, you know, something that makes a, a strong VC is, is someone who has a really high EQ more broadly, because again, you're one of the fun parts of the job is that kind of partnership with founders. So you might be taking a board seat, you might not be taking a board seat, but are, you know, answering emails from the founder at, you know, 1am when they just had their, you know, senior sales lead leave and they need us, they need to find a new one. And they're kind of going through a crisis on that end. So I think having a strong EQ more broadly is really important because this job is so much in between the lines. It's not just that check you write when you when you enter into, you know, when you get a signed term sheet, it's not just a check you write, it's it's all the in between times in between the funding rounds and all these like, high level milestones that are celebrated by either the press or, or companies, there's so much that goes into that. And so I think the best investors have a really strong EQ and their ability to support founders in that journey from a holistic nature. So that's something I think is is really important to the job and uh, something that, you know, I think we, we really look to try and leverage here at Struck in terms of just being, you know, a strong partner for founders throughout their entire journey. So, yeah, I think those things um, are, are all really important to, to being successful in, in the role. You found a way to become an associate venture capital list on a on a very small team, which I know VC is notoriously hard to get into. Um, do you have any advice for those looking to break into the industry? Yeah, I think VC in particular, the last probably like five years has become a career path that's really highly interesting to a lot of people because it, it is, you know, you get to talk with founders all the time. You get to to see technology companies potentially from their infancy to, you know, when they become public publicly traded entities. So there's a lot of really, really cool and exciting things about the job. And so Consequently, a lot of people have tried to break in. So it's a highly competitive process. And, you know, really anything that you can do to differentiate yourself can be beneficial. So I think you see a lot of folks creating content, whether that's, you know, podcasts or writing um, on Medium or other blogs around, you know, interesting startups that they've met or putting themselves out there in a local tech ecosystem they might be in. So, you know, if they're here in um, Los Angeles, it's maybe meeting with founders and, and building like a small dinner series where founders can meet other founders and just generally building your your personal kind of brand within a certain ecosystem can be really beneficial. And then finally, you know, if this is an industry you want to, to enter into, because there is so much content out there, you can get a really good idea and build your own kind of personal investment mandate and thesis because all these deals are announced on TechCrunch. You can read about them in Axios Pro Rata and Fortune Term Sheet. You can get kind of a good idea of the types of companies that are getting funded and build your own perspective on, oh, this is a this is the most exciting company or um, I'm not business model and, and just generally build up more of a perspective as an investor. So I think from a practical practical perspective, maybe that's one once a month, you identify, um, you know, let's say you're trying to enter into pre-seed and seed investing. Once a month, you identify a pre-seed or seed stage company that was funded, and you maybe, you know, say, okay, I want to want to think through this one. You write a quick one pager on why this is interesting to you, why you would invest, what are some of the risks, and you kind of build up this personal portfolio, let's say, and you know, you can use that as collateral in your job journey of. Hey, here's how I think about things as an investor. Here's how I would diligence an opportunity. Here are companies I've identified. Maybe they did the fund didn't identify them previously. So 
it's building up kind of like a personal track record in the sense of how you would think about certain companies and opportunities. So tons of content out there, I think, you know, important ultimately to just build some sort of framework, both from a personal brand building perspective of how you get connected with founders and also from, from a intellectual perspective of how you would diligence a company. All of that is really important. Correct me if I'm mistaken, but at Duke, did you, you were a part of the venture fund at the school, correct? So no, so I wasn't a part of, yeah, I think there's some sort of angel community at Duke, um, but I wasn't. Uh, so interestingly enough, I, you know, from based on, you know, the area I grew up in, which is upstate New York, um, I wasn't, didn't intend to enter into technology as as my career of choice. I candidly didn't have an amazing idea of what I wanted to do um, as I entered the professional workforce. I uh, I would say the the vast majority of my life heading into grad school, my biggest passion and pursuit was tennis. Um, I played competitively growing up. I played at Duke in college. I played lower level professional events as an amateur. That was kind of my thing. And uh, I wasn't really thinking as much about, hey, what's, what's next? What do I want to go into after? And so I you know, went to Duke, was fortunate enough to get an amazing education there. Um, was fortunate enough to get into grad school there. And then I started thinking about what I wanted to do next. And tech didn't even come on my radar. I wanted to enter into management consulting, actually. It seemed like a fun job. You get to travel a lot. And, uh, you know, some personal things kind of got in the way of that. And that's how I entered into technology um, when I worked at the University of Rochester Tech Ventures Group, which is a commercialization arm of the university's technology. And so kind of a, an interesting path in. For, for anyone who might be interested in technology, I think there's so many events. Uh, if they're a student on campus for you to get involved in, whether it's an angel network, a commercialization arm so it's of the university, there's a tons of different opportunities from an internship perspective or just a volunteer perspective for you to get involved with. And so I, I wish I was that intentional at that stage. And um, fortunately enough for me, it's it's led me to a really you know exciting path that I'm on now. But I um I wasn't quite as intentional as maybe some other people are with with their careers um in their early twenties. And to be fair, to be frank, I I was the same way. I had no idea what I wanted to do, which is why I'm having this podcast. So someone hears what you're saying and and your experience in VC, and they didn't know about it before, and they can become a little bit more intentional about it. Um, again, a little off the rails. Are there any things from tennis? that have helped you as a venture capitalist? I think uh, certainly there are. I carry so much of what I learned as an athlete in, with me today. Whether it's just high-level things, I think being an athlete and a tennis player teaches you a level of like discipline and responsibility and consistency that is really beneficial for, for me in, in you know, my professional career and, and as an adult more broadly. So really fortunate to, to have you know, spent that much time you know, developing myself in the sport. And I think, you know, more specifically to venture, like, like we've kind of talked about a lot, it's a really highly people driven uh, profession, and you have to be able to relate to people, you know, at a really, really strong, strong level, ultimately, if you want to potentially invest, or invest in them and partner with them. And so, you know, tennis, you it is an individual sport, you know, maybe a little bit different than a team sport, but it's a really highly international sport. And so, you know, there's times where you're competing internationally as a teenager and you don't know who's who from who. 
And you have to, you know, build up a relationship if you want to practice with that person or just, you know, generally no one likes being a loner. So you want to build, you know, friendships with people. And so, you know, had the opportunity to compete internationally and have college teammates from Brazil and Germany and Peru and, you know, all these different international com- countries. And so I think the the skills of just generally being able to relate to people and build a relationship and a potential friendship with them is something I've, I've, I've definitely utilized in my career and venture as I meet you know, founders from all different walks of life. So I think certainly tennis has been really beneficial for for my career and just my maturation as a person. You told us a bit about what's keeping you or what attracted you to venture capital um, and how you got in. What's keeping you in it? You know, I think our firm is at a really exciting place right now. We are investing out of our second fund. We've really stood up a lot of exciting initiatives over the last year or so that I think position us really well for the future. And so I think for, for me, there's kind of this really interesting dual track of not only you know being blessed and fortunate enough to talk to founders all day and, and get to meet technology companies at some of their earliest stages and, and, see, and, and potentially invest in them, but also you know, help build the firm with you know, colleagues who are incredibly experienced and, and teach me new things every day. So I think it's a really interesting opportunity and for anyone interested in entering venture, I think there, you know, is the decision of do you want to do you want to join a really well established firm that might be investing out of their sixth, seventh, eighth fund, you know, have billions under management. Ultimately, those roles will probably be a lot more well defined than if you joined, you know, a fund that's investing out of its second or, or third fund. So I think that's a personal choice. And, and ultimately, I wanted to, you know, provide a helping hand and helping to, to build this firm into its next stages. And I think that that's really exciting as well for, for me, from a personal perspective of just being boots on the ground um, on within a firm that I think has a really exciting trajectory ahead. And as you continue to navigate your career, are there any guiding principles that you keep in mind or follow? I think for me in my career, you know, I touched on touched on like maybe a lack of intentionality early on in my 20s with how I was pursuing my career. And I think I've, you know, definitely shifted that. And, and while it's still broad in nature and that I just ultimately want to, to be happy in what I'm doing and work every day and, and feel intellectually stimulated and work with people who I'm you know, proud to work with and I can learn from every day. Those are probably the most important things for me in my career and the framework I try to apply. If I ever feel that I'm working in an organization or in a job where I'm, I'm not necessarily proud of my day-to-day or I'm not happy with the, the colleagues that I'm surrounding myself with or ultimately I want something different from an intellectual perspective of, of the role and what I'm doing, then and I know it'll be time for a change. But I think for me, it's, it ultimately comes down to just being, being really happy and secure in your day-to-day and kind of loving all the minutia that goes into that and um, feeling like you're, you're continuing to push yourself and, and learn. You actually started a trend that will now be, I think, a question that I, I end every podcast with, um, but it's called essentially a hot take. And because you're in venture capital, you're making small bets constantly about the future or what the future will look like or who will succeed, um, whether it's a company, a group of people, excuse me, or a certain product. And you can be safe, but ideally it's a hot take. Where would you, if you could, place 
money in a bold bet that others aren't looking at. So you talked about climate a lot. So let's stay away from climate and maybe AI as well. But what what's a place where um, you think there's potential, even just if it's based on a hunt? That's a good question. Um, yeah, and you stole my answer. I would say definitely climate moving forward. Yeah, I think for me, maybe not a hot take, but I think during COVID, you saw a lot of, you know, a trend towards a lot of remote work, people working from anywhere. Um, I think that spoke to a lot of um, a desire for flexibility from, from you know, people working in, in traditional corporate careers or in startup life. And, and I think that was ultimately beneficial. But I think you're, you know, maybe not a hot take, but something I really, really truly believe is um, you're going to see a big retrenchment to a lot of the major metros because ultimately I think there are certain network effects that are just irrefutable if you from a you know a tech perspective or you know a certain industry perspective within certain cities and just the the huge kind of infrastructure in place for uh, a technology company to succeed in San Francisco or a um, an oil and gas company to succeed in Houston I think those are really, really difficult to, to kind of um, overturn. And so I think while the, the trends to remote work and just a broader spreading of the talent pool across the country were really acutely felt over the last couple of years, I think you are going to see a, a, a definite retrenchment to a lot of these traditional cities um, and that have you know, dominated certain industries, whether it's technology, oil and gas, like I mentioned, media, et cetera. Um, I think you you've certainly kind of seen that here over the last few months, and I think we'll we'll kind of proliferate as people continue to want to work in person and um, and, and build things in, in together. So maybe not scalding hot, but um, but certainly something I believe in. No, I love it, and you were able to pivot from climate. Sorry for stealing your answer, uh, but but feel free feel free to double click on why climate as well. I know we talked about it a little bit, but I'm, I'm interested to hear more too. Yeah. I think um, it talks a lot about the regulatory kind of framework. So, you know, there's tons of government incentives for consumers to purchase an electric car or purchase an electric appliance. And so there's with government incentives comes a myriad of reporting responsibilities for consumers to actually tap into that tax credit or cash rebate or anything like that. So tons to get excited about there, both from a purchasing perspective, from a financing perspective, so from fintech, as well as the actual labor, you know, the the people who are actually making these products or delivering these services. So like I said, tons to get excited about there in climate. Um, one other area we didn't get a chance to, to discuss as much is um, just related to the supply chain. So with climate, there are, you know, with any product, there's emissions related to a certain, you know, of that product being manufactured and built. And so um, those are ones that the company can, can quote unquote control. So um, do they own the truck that transported the product from factory to their distribution center? Those are easily, more easily to define and more easy for a company to kind of calculate. But then there's tons of other emissions where, you know, you might be working with a manufacturer and it's difficult to understand their carbon emissions, their their waste, because you don't own that facility. You know, you're one of many of their clients. And so these emissions, scope three emissions, have been a really, really difficult nut to crack, so to speak, and really difficult for, for um, sustainability-focused supply chain tools to understand. And so 
I've, I've started to see a, some companies thinking through the scope three emission calculation process in a really interesting way recently. And so I'm, I'm generally hope I'm generally hopeful that we can kind of think through ingesting all the different relevant data sources to a, a, a supply chain and, and finding solutions to make those more sustainable and, and durable in the face of, of climate change. So um, that's been another really exciting area as well in climate. And so there's just so many opportunities out there, I think, you know, within the space. And so I'm really excited to, to really check more of those out this year. No, thank you. That was extremely thorough. And I, I'll have to go and do my homework on scope three emissions as well. Thank you so much, Jason, for joining and um, loved learning and hearing from you. Yeah, no, this was great. Thanks for having me on. Tons of great questions, um, a really good conversation, and um, excited to listen to more of your podcasts in the future. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Career Illustrated. If you want to access the episodes in a more organized manner or want to have input into future subjects and guests, head over to careerillustrated.co and join the newsletter. Thanks again for sharing your time.